Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Well, hello everyone. I hope everyone's actually a little bit weller than how I'm feeling. I don't know if anybody knows, but I might as well try and explain what's happened. It's Kieran put a nice message out on the forums a couple of days ago. Um, shows as well will be a little bit erratic at the moment, just while we kind of get over this little little patch, as you can see, as you see. A few days ago, I went to work on night shift, and expected just to come back the next day, but didn't I? I think actually, what happened was I was doing a shift, and I think it was around about one o'clock at night. And really, on a night shift where I work, it's like I work in the water industry, and really. Our job is raw water comes in and on this plant and drinking water goes out. And it really runs itself like a big HAL computer, loads of computers. And they're all really monitoring each other, adding little bits of chemicals and everything like that. And we just monitor, and especially at the night time, you just make sure everything's running rather nice. You might go out and have a few site checks and just make sure there's no one's up to any good around the site. And, you know, just make sure all things are just ticking over quite nicely, a nice quiet night, and then if there's anything work to do, wise that gets done on the, really the, the morning shift. So I was there, night shift, and it was around about one o'clock, and I just actually jumped up from my chair and went to the door, and that's really the last I can remember. I think what's happened is, you know, when you kind of, I don't know, I'm getting on, you know, 40, 41, I think 41, yes, that's right. I think it was just like a, Low blood pressure or high blood pressure, or I think it's low blood pressure. You know, you you kind of you jump up too quick and you get dizzy and everything. So I opened the door. This wave of dizziness come on, and then that was actually the last I remembered. You know, and I woke up lying on the concrete on the floor outside this building where all the computers are, and there was a big pool of blood there. And I obviously fell. Just I hadn't. I've got no actually marks on my arms or on my hands or knees or anything. 
So the side of my face has took the full, you know, and I'm six foot three, so it's took a fair, <laughs> it's fair travelled a fair distance at a fair speed because I'm touching 15 and a half, 16 stone there. So it's, it's travelled, you know. My face hit the, the concrete and here I've been left with a fracture across, I think I've got two fractures, I'm not actually too sure, but I definitely know I've got a fracture across, you know, from my eye really back to my ear, somewhere along in that region, there's a, there's a crack there, and I think there might be a crack on my cheek, I'm not too sure, I can't remember, <laughs> but what I've also got is I've got this tiny little bleed, or I had a little bleed at the time, obviously where the skull's kind of cracked. I've got this little bleed. Some are calling it like a bleed. Some doctors are calling it an air pocket. And it's a tiny little thing. And it, thank God, it didn't warrant actual surgery, you know, because the you go in there thinking, oh, I've just bloody banged my head. And then the kind of, it's the names, you know, words to start saying, you know, we haven't got a neurosurgeon here. We'll have to, you know, you might have to go to another hospital, see the neurosurgeon, you know, and I saw oh, bloody hell. I was, you know, I'm, I'm typical male. I'm a big baby. Do you know what I mean? And it's looking, actually, my boss was on site. My boss was there. He lives on the site, you know, and when I kind of pulled me, pulled myself together and realized what was happening, realized I'd knocked myself out. And realised it was because my vision was all over the place that it was worse than what I thought. You know, my nose was pouring, there was blood everywhere. To be quite honest, I uh, I phoned up my boss Jimmy, and bless him. You know, the lad's just been through a heart attack himself um, six months ago. He came down, and I knew something was up because he got such a fright when he seen us. You know, when you first seen us that first day, or the first, I'd say the my first day. There was definitely a weird shape to my head, you know what I mean? It was like, it's not there now, don't worry about that, but it was definitely, there was bits concave, there was bits squashed in, and it just, it looked hideous to be quite honest. And my eye, oh, my eye. I mean, even now, while I'm talking now on on the mic here, it's, I, I talk with one eye shut, do you know what I mean? Because it's just so black and blue and closed up. But that first, the first day, it, or the first, say, you know, hour after I saw it, it was the kind of puffy and swollen, but then it started to go red and hideous like that. But then the next day, you know, you've got your, your eyeball. Well, that was actually full of blood. I mean, it goes red. It's still red there now. It looked like some alien. But there was this sack of blood. It's <laughs> kind of a bit squeamish there now. There was this sack of blood hanging from my eyeball, which and that sack of blood was actually hanging outside my eye. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't kind of... It wasn't part of the skin around me eye, you know, it wasn't that. It was actually the eyeball. It's just if, I think it must have, like, a thin layer of, of of some kind of material over it. Well, that was all full of blood, and it was like a, a... Oh, it was like a bag of... And kids were frightened to death of us, you know. Melanie didn't actually take the kids to see us in the, the first day of visiting, or the first day she came up. She says, I think it might actually be frightening for them, you know what I mean? And bless them when they came the next year... Reedy, he's five, Ellie's 11, just, you could tell, do you know what I mean? This was Dad, and Dad didn't look right, and Dad had a bit of a squashed head, and his eye was all puffed up and everything like that. So anyways, I've got this little bleed, and things might be a little bit, you know, I don't, but me and Kieran don't know how the shows are going to pan out. You know, we've got odd shows done, recorded, but they've got to be edited and stuff like that, so I get a bit of a couple of headaches on the the screen when I'm I'm staring at it for that long 
And you want to see the amount of pills I'm taking. Do you know what I mean? That's a, quite a... You know, you always see these these old fellas that have had accidents that are, you know, had a stroke and that, and they've got all the pills. Well, trust us, I've got about... Well, I think there's around about eight or nine boxes of pills. You know what I mean? I mean I've, got, I've even got senna laxative tablets because all these pills bung you up. <laughs> so I'm even bloody taking tablets to make a shite more. So I've got this bleed, and they weren't going to actually... Thank God for that, mate. I was crying, actually, when um, actually the guy came in and said... Because what they did, I went through all these big scans where this machine's spinning around you. You know, that's all frightening and nervy stuff. I went through these twice, and they sent these images off to the neurosurgeons at a, another hospital and they said it wasn't big enough they just really you needed i needed to be monitored for like 48 hours and because of this air bubble little pocket inside my brain the, there is a risk of infection so they've put us on antibiotics these and these are like horse pills you know i just thought antibiotics were the same size as any other bloody anti, uh, uh, tablet so i'm on these horse pill antibiotics just in case as I say, if there is a chance of getting infection infection in there, this could lead to like meningitis and all hideous things like that. So I'm I'm now on them, and it means that I tick a few boxes, which is going to be a bit of a nightmare to be quite honest. I tick a few boxes to stop us driving, to get us not banned from driving, but not allowed to drive for a while in case because of this air bubble, this bleed. There's a risk of a fit or something like that, and that's what nightmare thought. So. I've just got to actually wait and see. And like I say, I, it's just one of these things, time will tell, you know what I mean? Okay, I feel all right, you know what I mean? I've just got, things have got to take slow, do you know what I mean? Everything seems to be taken slow. When I do things, you know, I just, I've just got to be, I'm so paranoid about hitting my head, you know what I mean? And especially in mornings when we try and get the kids ready for school, it's like, it, it, it freaks us out, you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's, like any house, I'm guessing, you know, anyone who's got children just knows this situation, you know what I mean? It's like, come on, up, 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 get up, man! And it's all, how you got your homework? How you done? How you cleaning your teeth? And it's actually too much for us, to, and it especially was today, and I just thought, I have to go back to bed, man, <laughs> yeah, put myself to bed. So that's the kind of the situation. I don't know what else is happening. I'm sure I'm going to be off for a while and just take it easy, do you know what I mean? I, I hope everything's that's okay with everyone else out there. And, and I would just like to say, you know, especially on the forums there, I've had some, you know, like comments about get well soon. It just, it actually, you know what I mean? I'm a big bloody softy, to be quite honest, and I was crying my eyes out when I was reading them. So uh, it is. Oh, bloody hell. Anyway. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Really, it did. It meant so much to us. You know, things are still going to roll on. I don't know how it's going to happen. You know, we are still here. You know what I mean? It's, we've got back shows. We've got shows all, you know, the Michael Moorcock. And what I didn't want to spoil up was, you know, the build-up to the Michael Moorcock show. And even that might be put back, which, you know, please forgive me if that, that's the case. You know, if I kind of get it out, out on Christmas time for this reason, it's just, it's one of them things. And, then, you know... It can't be helped, and I think everyone realised that. So, but yes, but we've now tonight got a story by Michael Moorcock again, and actually, it's narrated by Steve Ely. You know, Steve Ely Escape Pod, and he's done a fantastic job here. So, I hope you all listen to this and enjoy it, and I will catch you at the end of the story. So, Starship Sofa presents Lost Sorceress of the Silent Citadel. 
by Michael Moorcock. They came on the earthling naked, somewhere in the shifting desert when Mars's harsh sunlight beat through thinning atmosphere and the sand was raw glass cutting into bare feet. His skin hung like filthy rags from his bloody flesh. He was starved, filthy, making noises like an animal. He was raving, empty of identity and will. What had the ghosts of those ancient Martians done to him? Had they traveled through time and space to claim a foul and unlikely price? A novella of alien mysteries, of a woman who craved life, who lusted for the only man who ever dared disobey her. A tale of Captain John McShard, the half-Martian, of old blood and older memories, of a restless quest for the prize of forgotten centuries. Chapter 1 Whispers of an Ancient Memory That's Captain John McShard, the tomb robber. Schoenberg leaned his capacious belly on the bar, wiping around it with a filthy rag. They say his mother was a Martian princess turned whore, and his father, Low City's best-known antiquities fence, proprietor of the CD-20 capstans, Schoenberg murmured wetly through lips like fresh liver. Well, Mercury was the only world would take them, them and their filthy egg. He flicked a look towards the door and became suddenly grave. A man stood there, outlined against the glare of the Martian day. At first he appeared to hesitate and go on down the street. Then he pushed his way through the doors and paused again. He was a big, hard-muscled man, dressed in spare ochre and brown, with some kind of ancient weapon, all baroque, unstable plastics and metals, prominent on his hip. A banning gun. They said only two men in the solar system could handle a banning. One was the legendary Northwest Smith. The other was Captain John McShard. Anyone else trying to fire it died unpleasantly. They said Smith had given his soul for it. But McShard's soul was still there, behind that steady gray gaze, yearning for oblivion. From long habit, Captain John McShard paused in the doorway and waited until his sight had fully adjusted to the sputtering naphtha. His gaze glowed with a permanent feral fire. He was a lean-faced, slim-hipped wolf's head whom no man could ever tame. Through all the system's worlds and all the mysterious places of interplanetary space, many had tried to take the wild beast out of Captain John McShard. He remained as wild and free as in the days when, as a boy, he had scrabbled for survival over the unforgiving waste of rocky crags that was Mercury, and from the disparate blood of two planets had built a body which could withstand the cruel climate of a third. Captain John McShard was in Schomburg's for a reason. He never did anything without a reason. He couldn't go to sleep until he had first considered the action. It was what he had learned on Mercury— orphaned, surviving in those terrible caverns, fighting fiercely for subsistence where nothing would grow, and where you and the half-human tribe which had adopted you were the tastiest prey on the planet. More than any Earthman, he had learned the old ways, the sweet, dangerous old ways of the ancient Martians, whose descendants still haunted the worn and whispering hills which were the remains of Mars's great mountain ranges in the ages of her might, when the Sea Kings ruled a planet as blue as turquoise, as glittering red as rubies, and as green as that emerald isle which had produced Captain John McShard's own Earthblood kin as tough, as mystical, and as filled with wanderlust as this stepson of the shrieking Mercurian wastelands, with the blood of Brian Boru, Henry Tudor, Charles Edward Stewart, and Hiawatha in his veins. The blood of Martian sea kings. 
blood which called to him across the centuries and informed him with the deep knowledge of his ancestors. Those ancestors had fought against the Danes and the Anglo-Saxons, been cavaliers in the Stuart cause, and marshals in Napoleon's army. They had fought to unite the warring tribes and form the great Iroquois Confederacy. They had fought for and against the standard of Rhiannon, in both male and female guise, survived blasting sorcery, and led the starving armies of Barrakesh into the final battle of the Martian Pole. Their stories, their courage, and their mad fearlessness in the face of inevitable death were legendary. Captain John McShard had known nothing of this ancestry, of course, and there were still many unsolved mysteries in his past, but he had little interest in them. He had the instincts of any intelligent wild animal, and left the past in the past. A cat-like curiosity was what drove him, and had made him the best archaeological hunter on five planets. Some, like Schomburg, called him a grave robber, though never to his face. There was scarcely a museum in the inhabited universe which didn't proudly display a find of Captain John McShard's. And there wasn't a woman in the system who hadn't known him and didn't remember him. To call Captain John McShard a loner was something of a tautology. Captain John McShard was loneliness personified. He was like a spur of rock in the deep desert, resisting everything man and nature could send against it. He was endurance. He was integrity, and he was grit through and through. Only one who had tested himself against the entire fury of alien mercury and survived could know what it meant to be Captain John McShard, trusting only Captain John McShard. Captain John McShard was very sparing in his affections, but gave less to himself than he gave to an alley brint, a wounded ray rat, or the scrawny street kid begging in the hard, sour Martian sun to whom he tossed a piece of old silver before striding into the bar and taking his usual, which Schomburg had ready for him. The Dutchman began to babble something, but Captain John McShard placed his lips to the shot glass, turned his back on Schomburg, and surveyed his company. His company was pretending they hadn't seen him come in. From a top pocket, Captain John McShard took a twisted pencil of Venusian talk-talk wood and stuck it between his teeth, chewing on it thoughtfully. Eventually his steady gaze fell on a fat merchant, in a fancy fake scow-skin jerkin and vivid blue tights, who pretended an interest in his fancifully carved flagon. "'Your name, Morricone?' Captain John McShard's voice was a whisper cutting through the nervous rhythms of men who couldn't help taking in sudden air and scraping tongues round mouths suddenly transformed to sandpaper. Captain John McShard's thin lips opened wide enough for the others to see a glint of bright white teeth before they shut tight again. Morricone nodded. He made a half-hearted attempt to smile. He put his hands on either side of his cards and made funny shrugging movements. From somewhere, softly, a strang string sounded. The sound faded. Captain John McShard didn't move. He stood there until he was sure he could be heard. "'You wanted to see me,' said Captain John McShard, and jerked his head towards a corner where a filthy table was suddenly unoccupied. The man called Morricone scuttled obediently towards the table. Holding his right arm in a funny way, he sat down, watching Captain John McShard as he picked up his bottle and glass and walked slowly, his antique got-scale leggings chinking faintly. Again the strang string began to sound, its deep note making peculiar harmonies in the thin Martian air. There was a cry like a human voice, which echoed into nowhere, 
and when it was gone, the silence was even more profound. You wanted to see me? Captain John McShard moved the unlit stogie from one side of his mouth to the other. He'd gotten the message at Old Mars Station, as soon as he'd stepped off his ship, the Duchess of Malfi, and cleared Decon. His gray, jade-flecked eyes bore into Morricone's shifting black pupils. The fat merchant was obviously hyped on some kind of low-city headache powder. There wasn't a drug you couldn't buy at Schomburg's, where everything was for sale, including Schomburg. The hophead began to giggle in a way that at once identified him as a cruffer, addicted to the fine white powdered bark of the Venusian high tree cultures, who used the stuff to train their giant birds, but had the sense not to use it themselves. Captain John McShard turned away. He wasn't going to waste his time on a druggie, no matter how expensive his tastes. Morricone lost his terror of Captain John McShard then. He needed help more than he needed dope. Captain John McShard was faintly impressed. He knew the kind of hold Cruff had on its victims. But he kept on walking. Until Morricone scuttled in front of him and almost fell to his knees, his hands reaching out towards Captain John McShard, too afraid to touch him. His voice was small, desperate, and it held some kind of pain Captain John McShard recognized. Please! Captain John McShard made to move back into the glaring street. Please, Captain John McShard, please help me. I've been praying to the goddess that you'd come. His shoulders slumped, and he said dully, They've taken my daughter. The Thenet have taken my Mercedes. Captain John McShard hesitated, still looking into the street. From the corner of his mouth, he gave the name of the cheapest hotel in the quarter, Smith's. Nobody in their right mind would go near Smith's if they valued a life or limb. I'm there in an hour. Captain John McShard went out of the bar. The boy he'd given the silver coin to was still standing in the swirling Martian tide, the ever-moving wash of red dust which ran like a bizarre river down the time-eaten street. The boy grinned up at him. Old eyes, young skin. A slender snizzer lizard crawled on his shoulder and curled its strange prehensile tail around his left ear. The boy touched the creature tenderly, automatically. "'You good man, Captain John McShard!' For the first time in months, Captain John McShard allowed himself a thin, self-mocking grin. Chapter 2 Taken by the Thenet Captain John McShard left the main drag almost at once. He needed some advice and knew where he was most likely to find it. There was an old man he had to visit, though not of their race, Fra Energen had authority over the last of the Memejet priests whose order had discovered how rich the planet was in man-made treasure. They had also been experts on the Thenet, as well as the ancient Martian pantheon. His business over with, Captain John McShard walked back to his hotel. His route took him through the filthiest, most wretched slums ever seen across all the ports of the spaceways. He displayed neither weakness nor desires. His pace was the steady, relentless gait of the wolf. His eyes seemed unmoving, yet took in everything. All around him the high, tottering tenement towers of the low city seemed to sway in the glittering light, their rusted metal and red terracotta merging into the landscape as if they were natural, as if they had always been there. Not quite as old as time, some of the buildings were older than the human race. They had been added to and stripped and added to again, but those towers had sheltered and proclaimed the power of Mars's mightiest sea lords. Now there were slums, 
a rat warren for the scum of the spaceways, for half-Martians like Captain John McShard, for stranger genetic mixes that even Bruhel imagined. In that thin atmosphere, you could still smell the low city for miles, and beyond that, in the series of small craters known as Diana's Field, was Old Mars Station, the first spaceport the Earthlings had ever built, long before they had begun to discover the strange, retiring races which had remained near their cities, haunting them like barely living ghosts, more creatures of their own powerful memories than of any natural creation. Ancient myth made physical by act of will alone. Millennia before, the sea lords and their ladies and children died in those towers, sensing the end of their race as the last of the waters evaporated and red winds scoured the streets of all ornament and grace. Some chose to kill themselves as their fine ships became so many useless monuments and bands of heavily armed scavengers arrived, crossing the newborn deserts in search of loot. Some sea lords had marshaled their families and set off across the new-formed deserts in search of a mythical ocean which welled up from the planet's core. Many had followed a leader called Hergulash Eldon into the echoing lands of the High Reef and been lost forever. It had taken less than a generation, Captain John McShard knew, for a small but navigable ocean to evaporate rapidly until it was no more than a haze in the morning sunlight, and where it had been were slowly collapsing hulls, the remains of wharfs and jetties, endless dunes and rippling barrens, deserted cities of poignant dignity and unbelievable beauty, where the great dust tides rose and fell across the dead sea bottoms of a planet which had run out of resources. Even its water had come from Venus, until the Venusians had raised the price so only Earth could afford it. Earth was scarcely any better now, with water wars turning the blue planet into a background for endless skirmishes between nations and tribes, for the precious streams, rivers, and lakes they had used so dissolutely and let dissipate into space, turning God's paradise into Satan's wasteland. And now Earth couldn't afford Venusian water either. So Venus fought a bloody civil war for control of what was left of her trade. For a while, McShard had run bootleg water out of New Malvern. The kind of money the rich were prepared to pay for a tiny bottle was phenomenal. But he'd become sickened of it when he'd walked through London's notorious Westminster district and seen degenerates spending an artisan's wages on jars of grey reconstitute while mothers held the corpses of dehydrated babies in their arms and begged for the money to bury them. Captain John McShard! Captain John McShard knew the boy had followed him all the way to the hotel. Without turning, he said, You'd better introduce yourself, Sonny. The boy seemed ashamed of himself, as if he had never been detected before. He hung his head. My dad called me Milton, he said. Captain John McShard smiled then. Once. He stopped when he saw the boy's face. The child had been laughed at too often, and to him it meant danger, distrust, pain. So your dad was Mr. Elliot, right? The boy forgot any imagined insult. You knew him? How long did your mother know him? Well, he was on one of those long-haul ion sailors. He was a great guitarist, singer, wrote all his own material. He was going to see a producer when he came back with enough money to marry. Well, you know that story. The boy lowered his eyes. Never came back. I'm not your pa, said Captain John McShard, and went inside. He closed his door. He marveled at the tricks the street kids use these days. But that stuff couldn't work on him. 
He'd seen the masters pulling the last Uranian bock from a tight-fisted Quaker blubber chaser who had just finished a speech about a need for more workhouses. A few moments later, Morricone arrived. Captain John McShard knew it was him by the quick, almost hesitant rap. It's open, he said. There was never any point in locking doors in this place. It advertised you had something worth stealing. Maybe just your body. Morricone was terrified. He was terrified of the neighborhood, and he was terrified of Captain John McShard. But he was even more terrified of something else. Of whatever the Thenet might have done to his daughter. Captain John McShard had no love for the Thenet, and he didn't need a big excuse to put a few more of their number in hell. The gaudily dressed old man shuffled into the room, and his terror didn't go away. Captain John McShard closed the door behind him. Don't tell me about the Thenet, he said. I know about them and what they do. Tell me when they took your daughter, and whatever else you know about where they took her. I'll pass the old tombs, a good fifty or sixty versts from here, beyond the Yellow Canal. I paid a breed to follow them. That's as far as he got. He said the trail went on, but he wasn't going any further. I got the same from all of them. They won't follow the Thenet into the Agroniach Hills. Then I heard you had just come down from Earth. He made some effort at ordinary social conversation. His eyes remained crazed. What's it like back there now? This is better, said Captain John McShard. So they went into the Agroniach Hills? When? Some two days ago. Captain John McShard turned away with a shrug. I know, said the merchant, but it was different. They weren't going to eat her or... or play with her. His skin crawled visibly. They were careful not to mark her. It was as if she was for someone else. Maybe a big slaver? They were careful not to let any of their saliva drip on her. They got me, though. He extended the twisted branch of burned flesh that had been his forearm. Captain John McShard drew a deep breath and began to take off his boots. How much? Everything. Anything. You'll owe me a million hard deans if I bring her back alive. I won't guarantee her sanity. You'll have the money, I promise. Her name's Mercedes. She's sweet and decent, the only good thing I ever helped create. She was staying with me, the vacation. Her mother and I... Captain John McShard moved towards his board bed. Half in the morning. Give me a little time to put the money in a safe place. Then I'll leave, but not before. After Morricone had shuffled away, his footsteps growing softer and softer until they faded into the general music of the rowdy street outside, Captain John McShard began to laugh. It wasn't a laugh you ever wanted to hear again. Chapter 3 Hell Under the Hill The Agroniach Hills had been formed by a huge asteroid crashing into the area a few million years earlier, but the wide sweep of meadowland and streams surrounding them had never been successfully settled by Captain John McShard's people. They were far from what they seemed. Many settlers had come in the early days, attracted by the water and the grass. Few lasted a month, let alone a season. That water and grass existed on Mars because of Blake, the terraplaner. He had made it his life's work, crossing and recrossing one set of disparate genes with another until he had something which was like grass and like water and which could survive, maybe even thrive and proliferate, in Mars's barren climate. A sort of liquid algae and a kind of lichen at root but with so many genetic modifications that its mathematical pedigree filled a book. 
Blake's great atmosphere-pumping stations had transformed the Martian air and made it rich enough for Earthlings to breathe. He had meant to turn the whole of Mars into the same lush farmland he had seen crumble to dust on Earth. Some believed he had grown too ambitious, that instead of doing God's work, he was beginning to believe he, himself, was God. He had planned a city called New Jerusalem, and had designed its buildings, its parks, streams, and ornamental lakes. He had planted his experimental fields, and brought his first pioneer volunteers, and given them seed he had made, and fertilizer he had designed, and something had happened under the unshielded Martian sunlight which had not happened in his laboratories. Blake's Eden became worse than purgatory. His green shoots and laughing fountains developed a kind of intelligence, a taste for specific nutrients, a means of finding them and processing them to make them edible. Those nutrients were most commonly found in earthlings. The food could be enticed the way an anemone entices an insect. The prey saw sweet water, green grass, and was only too glad to fling itself deep into the greedy shoots, the thirsty liquid, which was only too glad to digest it. And so fathers had watched their children die before their eyes, killed and absorbed in moments. Women had seen hard-working husbands die and then become food themselves. Blake's seven pioneer families lasted a year, and there had been others since who had brought certain means of defeating the so-called paradise virus, who challenged the hungry grass and liquid, who planned to tame it. One by one, they too went to feed what had been intended to feed them. There were ways of surviving the paradise. Captain John McShard had tried them and tested them. For a while he had specialized in finding artifacts which the settlers had left behind—letters, deeds, cherished jewelry. He had learned how to live, for short periods at least, in the paradise. He had specialized, kept raising his price until it got too high for anybody. Then he quit. It was the way he put an end to his own boredom. What he did with all his money nobody knew, but he didn't spend it on himself. The only money Captain John McShard was known to exchange in large quantities was for modifications and repairs to that ship he christened the Duchess of Malfi, as alien as his sidearm, which he'd picked up in the rings and claimed by right of salvage. Even the scrap merchants hadn't wanted that ship. The metal it was made of could become poisonous to the touch. Like the weapon, the ship didn't allow everyone to handle her. Captain John McShard paid a halfling funt renter to drive him to the edge of the paradise, and he promised the sweating driver the price of his funt if he'd wait for news of his reappearance and come take him back to the city. And any other passenger I might have with me, he had added. The funter was almost beside himself with anxiety. He knew exactly what that green sentient weed could do, and he had heard tales how the streams had chased a man halfway back to the low city and consumed him on the spot. Drank him, they said. No sane creature, earthling or Martian, would risk the dangers of the paradise. Not only was the very landscape dangerous, there were also the Thenet. The Thenet, whose venom was unpalatable to the paradise, came and went comfortably all year round, emerging only occasionally to make raids on the human settlements, certain that no posse would ever dare follow them back to their city of tunnels, Kong Gresh, deep at the center of the Agroniach Crater, which lay at the center of the Agroniach Hills, where the weed did not grow and the streams did not flow. They raided for pleasure, the Thenet, mostly when they craved a delicacy. 
Human flesh was almost an addiction to them, they desired it so much. They were a cruel people and took pleasure in their captives, keeping them alive for many weeks sometimes, especially if they were young women. They savored this killing. Schomburg had put it graphically enough once. The longer the torment, the sweeter the meat. His customers wondered how he understood such minds. Captain John McShard knew Mercedes Morricone had a chance of life. He hoped when he found her, she would still want that chance. What had Morricone said about the Thenet not wishing to mark her? That they were capturing her for someone else? Who? Captain John McShard wanted to find out for himself. No one had needed to pay the Thenet for young girls in years. The wars amongst the planets had given the streets plenty of good-looking women to choose from. Nobody ever noticed a few missing from time to time. It could be that the Thenet had been commissioned by a third party, someone who had their eye on the girl. Even if the Thenet were planning to sell her for the food they would need for the coming long winter, they would be careful to keep their goods in top quality, and Mercedes could well still be alive and safe. That was why Captain John McShard did not think he was wasting his time. And it was the only reason he would go this far into the Agroniox, where the Thenet weren't the greatest danger. Older races had once dwelled here. The abstracted, insane old gods of Mars, who had been driven back into the wastelands by the rising sea kings, whose heroes had learned the secrets of those ancient sorceries, those bizarre alchemies which the previous races had relied upon in their frozen orthodoxy. Others had fled, but some had remained, choosing some form of immortal half-life which allowed them to hide deep within the Martian underworld, itself a warren of tunnels and caverns carved by the last Martians, as their planet's surface became increasingly harsh, and their hydroponics and artificial atmospheres went deeper and deeper in an effort to conserve what little remained. Somewhere halfway to the planet's core were abandoned atmosphere plants, which only Captain John McShard had ever seen. Whole subterranean cities, even nations, still inhabited by the degenerated descendants of the former surface dwellers. With his Mercurian experience and his Martian blood, Captain John McShard had been able to communicate with some of these tribes, learning far more than if he had merely fought them. It was why Captain John McShard had been able to make such a good living, exploring depths few could detect, let alone reach. He had come to know those old Martians, almost as if they were his own people. Somehow his mother's blood called and was answered. The Thenet, of course, were not Martian, not originally. It was hard to believe the Thenet had ever been human, but there was no doubt they spoke a crude form of English— they were said to be degenerated descendants of a crashed Earth ship which had left Houston a couple of centuries before, carrying a political investigative committee looking into reports that Earth mining interests were using local labor as slaves. The reports had been right. The mining interests had made sure the distinguished senators never got to see the evidence. The half-Martian had learned much since he had left Mercury. He now wore power armor and breathing equipment of his own design. It buzzed on his body, shrouding him from soles to crown. The silky energy, soft as a child's touch, rippled around him like an atmosphere. He flickered and buzzed with complex circuitry outlining his veins and arteries, following the course of his blood. This medley of tiny sounds was given a crazy rhythm by the ticking of his anti-grav's notoriously dangerous regulators as he flew an inch above the hungry, whispering grass, the lush and luring streams of paradise. 
Only once did he come down, in the ruins of what was to have been the city of New Jerusalem, and where the grass did not grow. Here he ran at a loping pace, over cracked concrete, uneven flagstones, fallen brickwork, moving faster than he could fly, and at the same time recharging the anti-grav's short-lived power units. He was totally enclosed in the battle suit, his visible skin a strange arsenical green behind the overlapping energy shields, his artificial gills processing the atmosphere to purify maximum oxygen. Around him as he moved was an unstable aura buzzing with gold and misty greens, skipping and sizzling as elements in his armor mixed and reacted with particles of semi-artificial Martian air, fusing them into toxic fumes which would kill a man if taken straight. Which is why Captain John McShard wore his helmet. It most closely resembled the head of an ornamental dolphin, all sweeping flutes and baroque symmetry, the complicated, delicate wiring visible through the thin plastic skin, while the macro-engineered plant curving from between his shoulder blades looked almost like wings. He could have been one of the forgotten beasts of the Eldrin, which they had ridden against Basnagir when the first mythologies of Mars were being made. The transparent steel visor plate added to this alien appearance, enlarging and giving exaggerated curve to his eyes. He had become an unlikely creature whose outline would momentarily baffle any casual observer. There were beasts out here which fed off Thenet and human alike. Captain John McShard only needed a second's edge to survive, but that second was crucial. He was in the air again, his batteries at maximum charge. He was now a shimmering copper angel speeding over the thirsty grass and the hungry rivers of paradise, until he was, at last, standing on the shale slopes of the Agroniac Mountains. The range was essentially the rim of a huge, steep-sided crater. At the crater's center were peculiar pockets of gases, which were the byproduct of certain rock dust interacting with sunlight. These gases formed a breeding and sleeping environment for the Thenet, who could only survive so long away from what the first Earth explorers called their clouds. Most of the gas, which had a narcotic effect on humans, was drawn down into their burrows by an ingenious system of vents and manually operated fans. It was the only machinery they used. Otherwise, they were primitive enough though inventive murderers who delighted in the slow, perverse death of anything that lived, including their own sick and wounded. As Captain John McShard raced through the crags and eventually came to the crater walls, he knew he had at least a few hours left in which to save the girl. The Thenet had a way of letting the gases work on their human victims so that they became light-headed and cheerful. The Thenet knew how to amuse humans. Sometimes they would let the human feel this way for days, until they began to get too sluggish. Then they would do something which produced a sudden rush of adrenaline in their victim. And thereafter, it was unimaginable nightmare. Unimaginable because no human mind could conceive of such tortures and hold the memory or its sanity. No mind, that is, except Captain John McShard's. And it was questionable now that Captain John McShard's mind was still human. Here's where I was too late. That's the burrow into the middle chamber. Gas goes low there. All these thoughts passed through his head as he retraced steps over razor rocks and unstable shale. He had been paid four times to venture into Thenet territory. Twice he had successfully brought out living victims, both relatively still sane. Once he had brought out a corpse. Once he had left a corpse where he found it. 
Seven times before that, curiosity had taken him there. They had captured him. His chances of escape had been minimal. He was determined not to be captured again. This time, however, there was something different about the sinister, smoking landscape of craters and spikes. There was a kind of silence Captain John McShard couldn't explain. A sense of waiting. A sense of watching. Without further thought, however, he dropped down into the fissures and began to feel his way into the first flinty corridors. He had killed five Thenet guards almost without thought by the time he had begun to descend the great main passage into the Thenet underworld. He always killed Thenet at a distance if he could. Their venom could sear into delicate circuitry and destroy his armor and his lifelines. Three more Thenet fell without knowing they were dead. Captain John McShard felt no hesitation about killing them whenever he came across one. He killed them on... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Principle, the way they killed for pleasure. The less of the thin it there were, the better for everyone. And each corpse offered something useful to him as he crept on downwards into the subsidiary tunnels, following still familiar routes. The walls of the caverns were thick with flaking blood and ordure, which the Thenet used for decoration. Mostly it had hardened, but every so often it became soft, slippery, and Captain John McShard had to adjust his step, glad of his gills as well as his armor, which meant he did not have to smell or touch any of the glistening stuff, though every so often his air system overloaded, and he got just a hint of the disgusting stench. But something was wrong. His armor began to pop and tremble. It was a warning. Captain John McShard paused in the slippery passage and considered withdrawing. There would normally be more thenet, males and females, shuffling through the passages, going about their business, tending their eggs, tormenting their food. He had a depressing feeling that he couldn't easily get back, that he was already in a trap. Was it a trap which had been set for him specifically? Or could anyone be their prey? This wasn't the Thenet. Could it be the Thenet had new leadership and wider goals? 
Captain John McShard could smell intelligence. This was intelligence. And he hadn't smelled it before. Not in Thenid territory. Mostly what you smelled was terror and ghastly glee. There was something else down here. Something which had a personality. Something which had ambitions. Something which was, even now, gathering power. Go back, he told himself. Go back now. But Captain John McShard had learned to trust his instincts, and his instincts told him he would have to fight to return to the surface. What was more, he had an unpleasant feeling about what he might have to fight. His best chance was to pretend he had noticed nothing, to keep his attention on that intelligence, even as he sought out Mercedes Morricone. The narrow, fetid tunnels of the Thenid city were familiar, but now they were opening up, growing wider and taller, as if the Thenid had been working on them. But why? It was no good. His common sense told him to take a subsidiary tunnel. He looked around him, and then, suddenly, a wave of thought struck against his own mind, a wave which struck with the force of a tidal wave. It almost stopped him moving forward. It was a moment before the sense of those invading thoughts began to filter into him. No longer, no longer. I am the one, and I am more than one. I am Shiena Shah Shanikana of the Scarlet Price, and I shall again become the goddess I was when Mars was young. I have paid the Scarlet Price and the Black. I claim this system as my own, and then I shall claim the universe. The girl? Captain John McShard could not stop the question. All he received was a wave of mockery, which again struck with an almost physical weight. Chapter 5 Ancient and Modern A voice began to whisper through the serpentine tunnels. It was cold as space, hard and sharp as Mercurian steel. The female Mercedes is gone. She is gone, Earther. There is nothing of her save this flesh, and I am already changing the flesh so that it is more to my taste. She'll produce the egg, first the body, then the entire planet, then the system, then the stars. We shall thrive again. We shall feast at will amongst the galaxies. So that was it. Yet another of Mars's ancient ghosts trying to regain its former power. Most of them could not come into their own until they had mated with more vital humans. That was why the humans had eventually turned on them. These bright monsters had been killed, banished, imprisoned long ago, during the last of Mars's terrible wars. They had reached an enormous level of intellectual power, ruling the planet and influencing the whole system as they became capable of flinging their mental energy through interplanetary space to control distant intelligences and rule through them. They considered themselves to be gods, though they were mortal enough in many respects. It had been their arrogance which had brought them low— so abstract and strange had become their ambitions that they had forgotten the ordinary humans, those who had chosen not to follow their bizarre path, whose lives became wretched as the Martian godlings used all the planet's resources to increase their powers. They had grown obsessed with immortality, recording themselves onto extraordinary pieces of jewelry containing everything needed to reconstitute the entire individual— Everything but ordinary humans to place the jewels in their special settings and begin the process, which required considerable human resources, ultimately taking the lives of all involved. 
Most of these ordinary human slaves had died of starvation and dehydration as the elder races plundered their planet of her resources, melting the poles so that first there was an abundance of water, the time of the beginnings of the Sea King's power, but then, as quickly, the evaporation had begun, dissipating into empty space, no longer contained by the protective layers of ozone and oxygen. The water could not come back. It was a momentary shimmer in the vastness of space as it was drawn inevitably towards the sun. Captain John McShard knew all this because his mother had known all this. He had not known his mother, had not known he had emerged, a brawling, bawling, independent fighting creature smashing its way from the eggs she had saved, even as she and her husband died, victims of the planet's unforgiving climate. He had not known how he had come to live amongst the aboriginal ape-people and assume leadership of the tribe. The fiercely tribal Mercurians had been fascinated by his tanned, pale hide, so unlike their own dark-green skins, but they had never thought him anything but one of themselves. They came to value him. He had been elected a kind of leader. He had taken them to food and guarded them against the giant rock snakes. He had taught them to kill the snakes, to preserve their meat. They named him Tan Ars, or Brownskin. Tan Ars was his name until the Earthlings found him at last. His father's brother had paid for the search, paid to bring him back to Earth during that brief golden age before the planet again descended into civil war. Back to the old country. Back to Ireland. Back to Dublin and Trinity College. Dublin and London had not civilized Captain John McShard, but they had taught him the manners and ways of a gentleman. They had not educated Captain John McShard, but they had informed his experience. Now he understood his enemies as well as his friends, and he understood that the law of the giant corporations was identical to the law he had learned on Mercury. Kill or be killed. Trust nothing and no one. Power is survival. He smelled them. He was contemptuous of most of them, though they commanded millions— they were his kind, but they were his kind gone soft, obscenely greedy, decadent to the marrow. His instinct was to wipe them out, but they had trained him to serve them. And he had served them. At first, when the wars had begun, he volunteered. He had served well and honorably, but as the wars got dirtier and the issues less clear, he found himself withdrawing. He realized that he had more sympathy, most of the time, with the desperate men he was fighting than with the great patricians of Republican Earth. His refusal to take part in a particularly bloody operation had caused him to be branded a traitor. It was as an outlaw he had arrived on Mars. They had hunted him into the Red Wastelands and known he could not have lived. But Mars was a rest cure compared to Mercury. Captain John McShard had survived— it was wholesome compared to Earth. He had made friends, friends that no other humans had ever suspected existed, let alone seen. And Captain John McShard, in his own way, had prospered. Now he captained his own ship, the gloriously alien Duchess of Malfi, murmuring and baroque in her perpetually shifting darkness. Now he could pick and choose whom he killed and whom he didn't kill. He had no financial need to continue this dangerous life, no particular security to be derived, even the security of familiarity, nothing to escape from, nothing within him he could not confront. He did it because he was who he was. 
He was Captain John McShard, and Captain John McShard was a creature of action, a creature which only came fully alive when its own life was in the balance. A wild creature that longed for the harsh, savage places of the universe, their beauties and their dangers. But Captain John McShard had no wish to die here, in the slimy burrows of the unhuman thinnet. He had no desire to serve the insane ends of the old Martian godlings who saw their immortality slowly fading and longed for all their power again. You, Captain John McShard, will help me, and I will reward you. Before you die, I will make you the sire of a godling. Already the blood of my Martians mingles with your own. It is why you are so perfect for my plans. Captain John McShard, you are no longer the Earth Boy who grew up wild with the submen of Mercury. You are of our own blood, for your mother drew her descent directly from the greatest of the Sea Kings, and the Sea Kings were our own children. So much of our blood has mingled with yours that you are now almost one of us. Let your blood bring you home, Captain John McShard. My blood is my own. It belongs to nobody but me. It is the blood of gods and goddesses, John McShard, of kings and queens. Then it's all mine, by right of inheritance. Captain John McShard was all aggression now, though the voices speaking to him were patient, reasonable. He had heard similar voices before, as he lay writhing in his own filthy juices on one of the old ones's examining slabs. It is your earth blood, however, which will give us our glory back. That vital, sturdy, undiluted stuff which will restore our power and make Mars know her old fear of the unhumans who ruled her before the Sea Kings ruled. Welcome home, Captain John McShard, last of the Sea Kings' holy line. Welcome home to the palace of Queen Shayena Shah Shanakana, seventh of the seven sisters who guard the shrine of the star pool, seventh of the seven snake sisters, sorceress of the citadel of silence where she has slept for too many centuries. The little mortal did its job well, though unconsciously. I needed its daughter's womb, and I needed you. And now I have both. I will re-emerge from the great egg, fully restored to my power and position. Behold, Captain John McShard, the secrets of the silent citadel. Chapter 6 Queen of the Crystal Citadel All at once the half-Martian was surrounded by crystal. Crystal colored like rainbows, flashing and murmuring in a cold wind that blew from all directions towards the center, where a golden woman sat, smiling at him, beckoning to him, and driving all thought momentarily from his mind as it began to stumble forwards. He wanted nothing else in the world but to mate with her. He would die, if necessary, to perform that function. It took Captain John McShard a few long seconds to bring himself back in control. Faces formed within the crystal towers. Familiar faces. The faces of friends and enemies who welcomed Captain John McShart and bid him join them in their good company for eternity. These were the siren voices which had tempted Ulysses and his men across the void of space. Powerful intelligences trapped within indestructible crystal. Intelligences which, legend had it, could be freed by the stroke of a sacred sword held in the hand of one man. Captain John McShard shuddered. He had no such sword. 
only his jittering banning cannon in its heavy webbing. He laid his hand on the gun and seemed to draw reassurance from it. His white wolf's teeth were clenched in his lean jaw. No, I'm not your dupe, and I'm not Earth's dupe. I'm my own man. I'm Captain John McShard. There is no living individual more free than me in the universe, and no one more ready to fight to keep that freedom. Yes, murmured the voice in his head. It was the seductive voice. Think of the power, and therefore the freedom you have when we are combined. Power to do whatever you desire, to possess whatever you desire, to achieve whatever you desire. You will be reborn as master of the universe. The whole of existence will be yours, to satisfy your rarest appetites. It was full of everything feminine, that voice. He could almost smell it. He could see the figure outlined at the center of the crystal palace, the lithe young body with its waves of golden hair, clad in gold, with golden threads cascading down her perfect thighs, with golden cups supporting her perfect breasts, and golden sandals on her perfect feet. He could see her quite clearly, yet she seemed the length of a football field away. She was beckoning to him. "'All I want is the power to be free.' Captain John McShard said, and I already have that. I got it long ago. Nobody gave it to me. I took it. I took it on Mercury. I took it on Earth. I took it on Mars, and I took it on Venus. Not a year goes by when I do not take that freedom again, because that is the only way you preserve the kind of freedom I value. So everything in me, to my very marrow, is freedom. Everything in me fights to maintain that freedom. It is unconscious and as enduring as the universe itself. I am not the only one to possess it or to know how to fight to keep it. And it is the power of all the human heroes who overcame impossible odds that I carry in my blood. Whatever you do, Shiana Shashanakana, you cannot defeat that. She was laughing somewhere in his mind. That laughter coursed along his spine, over his buttocks, down his legs. It was directed... She was displaying the powers of her own incredible mind. Captain John McShard examined the body of the girl he had come to rescue. Of course the Martian sorceress possessed her, probably totally. But was there anything of the girl left? It was crucial that he know. He forced himself to push forward and thought he saw something like astonishment in the girl's eyes. Then another intelligence took control of her face, and the eyes blazed with eager fury, as if the goddess had found a worthy match. There was an ancient knowledge in those eyes which, when they met Captain John McShard's, saw its equal in his experience. But all Captain John McShard cared about was that he had glimpsed human eyes, a human face. Somewhere, Mercedes Morricone still existed. That body which pulsed with strange stolen life and glaring intelligence still contained the girl's soul. That was what he had needed to know. Give the human its body back, said Captain John McShard, switching to servos so that his arm wind up automatically, bringing the banning cannon to bear on the golden goddess, who now smiled up at him with impossible promises. Or I will destroy it, and in so doing destroy you. I am Captain John McShard, and you must know I have never made a threat I was not prepared to follow through. You cannot destroy me with that, a mere weapon. I draw my strength from all this, all these, from all my companions still imprisoned in the crystal. Ultimately, of course, I may release them. 
as they come to acknowledge that I am mistress of the silver machine. And now Captain John McShard looked up. It was as if someone had tilted him by the chin, and above him stretched the vibrating wires and twisting ribbons of silver that told him the terrible truth. Inadvertently, he had stepped into the core of one of the ancient Martian machines. The sorceress had set a trap, and it had been a subtle trap, a trap which showed the mettle of his enemy. The trap had used his own stupid pride against him. He cursed himself for an idiot, but already he was inspecting the peculiar twists and loops of the machine, which seemed to come from nowhere and disappear into nothing. A funnel of silver energy was at the apex, high above. Yet perhaps the most impressive part of the whole experience was that this silver citadel of science was absolutely silent. Silent, save for the faintest whisper, like the hiss of a human voice far away, the sweet, persuasive suggestions of this seductive sorceress, slipping into his synapses, soothing his ever-wary soul, preparing him for the big sleep, the long goodbye. Everything that was savage, everything that had made him fight to survive in the wastelands of Mercury, everything that he had learned in the cold depths of space and the steamy seas of Venus, everything he had been taught in the seminaries of Dublin, everything came to Captain John McShard's aid then. And there was every possibility that everything would not be enough. The silent crystals around him began to vibrate and dance, almost in triumph. And there, below the pulsing silver fire, the goddess began to dance. He knew why Shiena Shah Shanakana danced, and he tried desperately to take his eyes off her. He had never seen anything quite so beautiful. He had never desired a woman more. He felt something close to love. With a strangled curse which peeled his lips back from his teeth, he took the banning in both hands, his fingers playing across the weird lines and configurations of the casing, as if he drew music from an instrument. The goddess smiled, but did not stop dancing. Neither did the crystals of her citadel stop dancing. Everything moved in delicate, subtle silence. Everything seduced him. If there had been music, he might have resisted more easily. But the music was somewhere in his head. There was a tune. It was taking charge of his arms and legs, taking over his mind. Was he also dancing? Dancing with her in those strange, sinuous movements so reminiscent of snakes, of the snakes which had pursued them on Mercury, until he had become the hunter and turned them into food for himself and his tribe. Oh, you are strong and resourceful and mighty, and everything a hero should be. A true demigod to mate with a demigoddess and create a mighty god. A god who in turn will create entire new universes, an infinity of power. Look how beautiful you are, Captain John McShard. What a perfect specimen of your kind. A silver mirror appeared before him, and he saw not what she described, but the wild beast which had survived the deadly wastes of Mercury, the demonic creature who had slain the green emperor of Venus, pious and vicious robot chancellor of Ganymede. But the sweetness of her perfume, the sound of those golden silky threads brushing against her skin, the rise and fall of her breasts, the promise in her eyes— this, too, Captain John McShard shook off, and he thought he saw a look of some astonishment, almost of admiration, in those alien orbs. 
His fingers would scarcely obey him, but they moved without thought, from pure habit, flicking across the banning, touching it here, adjusting something there. An instrument made for aliens. No human hand had ever been meant to operate the banning, which was named not for its maker, but for the first man who had died trying to find out how it worked. General Banning had prided himself on his expertise with alien artifacts. He had not died immediately, but from the poisons which had eaten into his skin and slowly digested his flesh. Captain John McShard had never bothered to find out how the banning worked. He simply knew how to work it, the way so many Spanish boys simply know how to coax the most beautiful music from the guitar. Whatever alien sentience had built the Duchess of Malfi, the ship rejected most who tried to board her vast, echoing interior, whose very emptiness was essential to her function, to her very existence. These same intelligences, whom Captain John McShard believed to have perished out beyond Pluto, had also made the banning. There was a philosophy inherent to the ship and the weapon, and somehow Captain John McShard understood the philosophy and loved the purity of the minds which had created it. His respect was what had almost certainly saved his life more than once as he learned the properties and sublime beauty of the banning and the ship. He was panting. What had he been doing? Dancing? Before a mirror? The mirror was gone now. The goddess had stopped dancing. Indeed, she was leaning forward, fixing Captain John McShard with strange eyes in which flecks of rainbow colors flashed and flared. The red lips parted to show white, even teeth. The young flesh glowed with inner desires, impossible promises. Come, Captain John McShard, come to me and fulfill your noble destiny. Then Captain John McShard was sweeping the banning around him in an arc. He aimed at the crystals while the gun's impossible circuits and surfaces plated and replated in a blur of changes, from gold to copper to jade to silver to gold, as the great gun seemed to expand under Captain John McShard's urgent caresses. Yet nothing happened to the crystals. They darkened, but they did not break. It went from glaring day to misty night. A terrifying silence fell. He swept the gun again. Still the crystal held, and whatever was within the crystal held, too. It was harder to see movement, perhaps because the inhabitants protected themselves. But the gun had done nothing. The silence returned. The golden girl laughed. Her laughter was the sweetest music in the universe. Did you think, Captain John McShard, your famous gun could conquer Shiena Shah Shanakana, priestess of the Silent Citadel, sorceress of the Seven Dials? The stupid knights of the balance who came against us, all the way from Cygnus, met their match. They planned to conquer us, but we killed them all, even before they reached the inner planets. He looked up. She was so much closer now. Her wonderful beauty loomed over him. He gasped. He refused to take a step back. Those human lips were filled with the stored energy of ancient Mars as they smiled down at him. Oh, yes, Captain John McShard. You are not here by accident. I did not send the Thenet to take the girl until I knew you were about to land at Old Mars Station. And it was I who let the father know you were the only creature alive who could find his daughter. And you did find her, didn't you? You found me. You found Shiena Shah Shanakana, who has not known this desire for uncountable millennia, who has not felt such need, such joyous lust. 
Now Captain John McShard took that backward step, the great banning cannon loose on its webbing, swinging as his hands sought something in his clothing. Now his fists were clenched at his sides. The goddess licked her sublime lips. Is that sweat I see on your manly brow, Captain John McShard? A hand reached out and whisked lightly across his forehead. He felt as if a flaming knife had been drawn against his flesh. Yet he would have given his whole life to feel that touch again. He tasted a tongue that was not a human tongue. It licked at his flesh. It reveled in his smell, the feel of his hard, muscular body, the racing blood, the pounding heart, the sight of his perfect manhood. He was everything humans or Martians could be, everything the female might desire in a male. Her touch yielded to him, offered him a power he knew she would never really give up. He had known the most expert seductresses, but this creature brought the experience of centuries, the instincts of her stolen body, the cravings of a female which had not known any kind of feeling, only a burning ambition, for longer than most of Earth's greatest civilizations had come and gone. And those cravings were centered on Captain John McShard. "'You will sire the new Martian race,' she promised, as she moved her golden breastplates against his naked chest. "'You will die knowing that you have fulfilled your greatest possible destiny.' And Captain John McShard believed her. He believed her to the depths of his being. He wanted nothing else, nothing but to serve her in any way she demanded. The gun hung forgotten in its webbing. He reached out his arms to receive from her whatever she desired to give, to give to her whatever she needed to take. It was true. He was hers. Hers to use and then to bind, so that later his own son might feed upon his holy flesh and become him. That was his destiny, the eternal life which lay before him. But first, she whispered, you must entertain me. Then the sun must be sired, the remains of the humans driven from the bodies and the blood mingled in the painful and protracted mating rituals of those first Martians. She moved to enfold him in that final, lethal embrace. Chapter 7 The Poisoned Chalice They came on the earthling naked, somewhere in the shifting desert, almost a hundred versts from the Agroniac hills. He had no armor, no weapons. His skin hung like filthy rags on his bloody, blistered flesh. Both his legs had long, deep red lines running from thigh to heel, as if a white-hot sword blade had been placed on the limbs. He could see, but his eyes were turned inward. He was mumbling to himself. There was foam on his mangled lips. He was raving, seemingly empty of identity and will, and the noises that came occasionally from deep in his chest were the sounds a wild beast might make. At other times, he seemed amused. The patrol which found him had been looking for Venusian chuff-runners and couldn't believe anything lived in his condition. They were superstitious fellows. They thought at first he was a ghost. Then they decided he had fallen amongst ghosts, within the influence of those mythical Martians frozen in jewels and dreaming deep within the planet. Some of the customs people had seen earthling explorers who had returned from expeditions in a state not much better than this. But then one of the patrol recognized Captain John McShard, and they knew that whatever enemy he had met out here, it must have been a powerful one. They identified the long scars down his legs and on his hands as burns from fennet venom. But how had they gotten there? 
the marks did not look typical of Thenet torture. They began to take him back to Old Mars Station, where there was a doctor, but he roused himself, gathered his senses, and pointed urgently towards the Agroniacs. It seemed he had a companion. They had gone seventy versts before their instruments detected a human figure lying in the shade of a rock, a small bottle nearby. Indications were that the figure was barely alive. Captain John McShard sank back into the craft as soon as he saw Mercedes Morricone. He let go. He allowed oblivion at last to overcome him. He would never tell anyone, and he would never deliberately recall what Shiena Shah Shanakana, sorceress of the Silent Citadel, had made him do as she took hold of his mind. He would never admit what he had allowed her to do in order to ensure the success of a desperate, maybe suicidal, plan. She knew she could not fully control him, and it had whetted her curiosity, made her test her powers in ways she had never expected to test them. She fed off him. She tasted at his brain, the way a wealthy woman might take a delicate bite of a chocolate to see if it suited her. Some that she took from him she discarded as so much waste. Memories. Affections. Pride. But then she had become puzzled. Her own power seemed to ebb and flow. He was naked, and he had torn his own flesh for her amusement. He had capered and drooled for her amusement, and Captain John McShard was no longer a thinking human being. She had sucked him dry of everything she herself lacked. Dry of everything human. Or so it had seemed. For Captain John McShard had learned all he had needed to learn from the veteran priest he had talked to in Old City before he left. He had kept some kind of wit to him by tapping the venom from the thenet he had killed, keeping it in crushable files until the moment came when he needed that level of pain to keep his mind from Shiena Shah Shanakana's seductions. It had been her embrace that seared them both. But he intended to reverse her spell. He had reversed the path of most of the energy she had been drawing from her compatriots in their crystal prisons. He had absorbed it in the gun. For the gun didn't merely shoot— it also drew in. It processed its own power from the planet's energy, wherever that energy was to be found. The blood and soul she had sucked from him was still under his control. And he had let her draw him in, let her take his very soul, somehow keeping his own consciousness as he was absorbed into her, somehow linking with that other terrified fragment of soul-mind that was the girl to whom he was able to give strength, a chance at life. Somewhere in that ruined, apparently lunatic skull, there was a battle still taking place, through the twists and turns of an alien space and time. A battle for control of a human creature that had perished so that a goddess might survive. And it was not only Captain John McShard's vigorous blood she had sucked, nor his diamond-hard mind, but his will. A will which, ironically, she could not control. A will strong enough to take possession of a demigoddess. Captain John McShard was still there, actually inside her, actually working to destroy her. There had never been an individual more ruggedly determined to maintain its identity against all odds. He had summoned everything he possessed as she embraced him and broke the files containing the venom he had gathered from the fennet. The venom burned into his body as well as hers. The girl's body became useless to her. She began to remove herself from it. And Captain John McShard 
the skin of his hands and legs bubbling as the venom ate into them, kept his will directed at his goal. She had been astonished to discover a mind as powerful as her own, as thoroughly trained as her own in the Martian forms of mental control and counter-control which Earthers had nicknamed brain-brawling, and which more subtle observers knew as a combination of mental fencing and mental chess, whose outcome could annihilate the defeated. But the searing venom kept his mind free enough from her dominance, and ultimately allowed him to break from her embrace. She had advanced on him, a roaring, shouting thing of raw energy, the ruined human body abandoned. And then Captain John McShard forced himself towards his fallen banning cannon. The gun lay in a heap of clothing and circuitry which he had stripped from his own body before beginning to strip the flesh, as she had demanded. But all the while his iron will had kept the crucial parts of himself free— now he had the gun in his hands, and the golden whirlwind that was the true form of Shiena Shah Shanakana, sorceress of the silent citadel, was advancing towards him, triumphant in the knowledge that the gun had already failed to break the crystal coffins in which her kinfolk were still imprisoned. But Captain John McShard knew more about the people who had made the banning than she did. Her folk had merely killed that folk. Captain John McShard had examined the culture they had left behind in their great empty ship. He had never meant to destroy the crystal tombs with his gun. That would have released even more of the greedy immortals from their already fragile captivity. Instead, he had used the gun's powering devices, the cells which sucked in energy of cosmic proportions, which in turn powered the gun when it was needed to destroy. The gun hadn't failed to break the crystals. The reason it killed those who used it was because it could absorb enormous amounts of energy, as well as discharge them. What he had done was gather the power of the silent crystals into the gun, so that she could no longer call upon that power. Her energy, uncontained, began to dissipate. She began to return to the body of the girl. McShard's last act had been to take the apparently lifeless body and carry it through the winding, filthy tunnels of the Thenet, who had all long since fled, and somehow get her up to the surface, as a goddess shrilled and boomed in the crystal chamber, frustrated in her attempts to draw more strength from her imprisoned brothers and sisters. At the surface, Captain John McShard realized he would have to leave the banning behind if he was to get the girl to safety. He must risk it. It had not been until the following night that he had stopped. The girl was just conscious, a shoulder and leg raw from fennet venom, though her face, by a miracle, had not been touched. He had left her what little water he had brought and had stumbled on. He had been walking towards the old city when the customs patrol found him. The port doctors shook their heads. They could see no hope of saving him. But then Morricone stepped in. He flew Captain John McShard to Phobos and the famous Clinique Al-Rabia, where his daughter was already recovering. They had worked on him. A billion Dean had been spent on him. They had saved him. And in saving Captain John McShard, they instilled the germ of a new kind of anger, a profound understanding of the injustices which could let crippled boys beg the Martian dust, but fly the privilege to Phobos and the finest new medicine science could create. He wasn't ungrateful to Morricone. Morricone had kept his bargain, paid the price, and better. He didn't blame Morricone for his failure to understand, 
for not having the imagination to see that for every hero's life he saved, there were millions of ordinary people who would never be given the chance to become heroes. And they found his gun for him. Nobody dared handle it, but they picked it out of a dune with their Waldos and brought it to him in a sealed canister. Captain John McShard saw Mercedes Morricone a couple of times after he left the Clinique and was waiting for a ship to be recircuited according to his new instructions. Plastic surgery had rid her of most of the scars. She was more than grateful to him. She knew him in a way no woman had ever known him before. And she loved him. She couldn't help herself. But Captain John McShard had nothing to offer her now that he had given her back her life. Yet there was something there. A clear feeling of affection, almost a father's love for a daughter. He realized, to his own surprise, that he cared about her. He even took her aboard the Duchess of Malfi and showed her the wild, semi-stable gases and gemstones which were her controls. And Mercedes had fallen in love all over again, for the ship had a beauty that was unique. And pretending to joke, she said how marvelous it would be to stand at his side as he took the alien ship into the echoing corridors of the multiverse, following fault lines created in the impossibly remote past through the infinitely layered realities of intraspatial matter. How marvelous it would be to see the sights that he would see. He was putting the heavy canister down into a cradle he had made for it, and which fitted beside his compression bed. He had commissioned himself a new power suit, and it rippled against his body, outlining muscles and sinews as he moved gracefully to his familiar tasks, checking screens and globes, columns of glittering force. He pretended not to understand her. He didn't tell her what you had to become to steer the Duchess of Malfi through time and space. What you must cease to be. What you must learn never to desire, never to think about. He was gentle when he kissed her cheek and bade her goodbye for the last time. She watched him leave. His perfect body was outlined against the huge scarlet sun as it settled on the Martian horizon. Ribbons of red dust danced around his feet as he strode back up the drive of her father's mansion between the artificial cedars and the holograph fountains. He walked to the gates, seemed about to turn, changed his mind, and was gone. She was standing there in the morning, at Old Mars Station, as the Duchess blasted off, en route for the new worlds beyond Pluto, where Captain John McShard thought he might find what he was looking for. He had gained something more than the cosmic power which now resided in his gun. He now knew what love, ordinary, decent, celebratory human love, was. He had felt it. He still felt it. The ship was cruising smoothly, her own intelligence taking over. He turned away from his instruments and poured himself a much-needed shot of vortex water. Staring up at the great tapestry of stars, thinking about all the worlds and races which must inhabit them, Captain John McShard turned away from his instruments. Like the wild creature that he was, he shook off the dust and the horror and the memory of love. By the time his alien ship was passing Jupiter, Captain John McShard was his old self again. He patted the gun in its special case. The banning was now powered by the life stuff of the gods. Soon, he could start hunting the really big game. Well, hello again, back again. Yes, it's the, the invalid again. Hope you enjoyed that story. It was cracking and really appreciate Steve Ely to do that for us there. It's it, really kind of him. You know, it, 
don't forget the work of Michael Moorcock is copyright to himself and anything else is on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 3.0. There you go. Don't forget, you know, drop in a, a donation to keep going, although we're on, we're on a bit of a holiday-ish vacation at the moment. I don't, don't know when the next show will come out. We put the... I stuck Jerry Prunell out because that was actually ready to go and stuck that out. And actually, there's a few sound issues with that, and I have to just thank the gentleman, MCL Studios, who actually narrated last week's London Bone. I had to send it down to him because for some reason I had all my buttons clogged up and think boxes ticked wrong and I was getting feedback and everything like that. So, yes. So I don't think sex in sci-fi show 69 will come out on show 69 or I think we'll be late I think we can't come on time which is a typical male thing and (laughs) sex is involved Um, I've got a Spider Robinson interview which actually his paperback book Variable Star comes out so that actually might go out next week just to keep things taking over you know on actually not next week on Saturday and you know we've got some more stories by Michael Moorcock and Fingers crossed, getting stories every now and again as well by other people. So, you know, please stick along. Like I say, please drop a donation. We're on with hands and knees. And I just hope, you know, thank you again for everyone that's sent in well wishes, you know, because not many people know about it, but, you know, the amount of feedback I've had from forums has just been, it's just been fantastic. And I will be back on there. And thank you, I think, Furry Potato actually put up the, the the actual for Jerry Purnell's, you know, the new tab for Jerry Purnell. So thank you again. People's been chipping in. It's really appreciated. Good night. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 